Well, this morning as we continue in the book of Acts, we want to look at how we apply faith in a variety of circumstances. In order to do that, I want to take you back over the last couple chapters to show you where we've been with the disciples following Jesus. And maybe you'll find yourself in their story. Because it's not their story as much as it is our story. The disciples have found themselves in deep grief as they lost John the Baptist, one of their friends, colleagues. How do you apply faith during a time of deep grief and loss? Then they were rejected from Nazareth. How do you apply faith when you're going through a time of rejection? They've had renewed mission of being sent by Jesus, a new sense of a new chapter in their career, a new chapter in their life, and maybe you're at a high, high. And sometimes we're really good at applying faith when we desperately need God, but we're not sure how to apply faith when we're actually doing well. That's when most of us forget about God. That's what Deuteronomy warns us about. Some of us are overwhelmed. Disciples are totally overwhelmed in the chapter we looked at last week with Harry, which is 5,000 people need to be fed. And then they go from overwhelmed to celebrating, oh my goodness, Jesus just fed 5,000 people and had food left over. But after all that commotion, they're going to be exhausted. Physically exhausted, emotionally exhausted, spiritually exhausted. And Jesus is going to say the way you apply faith when you're exhausted is you need to have mandated solitude. You need to get away. You need to get back and recharge. Then, they're fearful and depleted because the time of getting away turns into a storm. And now they're going to be rowing and straining for hours, crying out, thinking they're going to die in fear. How do you apply faith in that circumstance? This is what we're going to look at today. In order to do that, let me give you a, a map of where we are, because there's some disagreement in the text as to where we are before we understand what's going on. It says in the passage, immediately, again, Mark's favorite word, he made his disciples get into the boat, right after the feeding of 5,000, go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. When he had sent them away, as Jesus... He departed to the mountain to pray. Now as evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he, Jesus, was alone on the land. And he saw them, the disciples, rowing and straining, for the wind was against them. Now there are two views. John Calvin believed the feeding of the 5,000 happened here in Bethsaida, Galilee, and they were going to then travel from here to here, based on a passage and reference in John 12. However, William Hendrickson takes the position, which I happen to hold to, which is that there was another Bethsaida, Bethsaida Julius, over here. And that they were actually here feeding the 5,000. And then from there, they will actually take the boat and go over here to the Garanus Valley, which puts them in the middle of the sea during the storm. The reason I believe that is because, one, based on this text, but also right there in the area on the top right, Bethsaida, it's an incredibly green pasture area where you really could seat 5,000 people. Keep in mind, having 5,000 people, this was unheard of. That was more people that lived in the whole community. This was the the Beatles concert of its day. This was the the deadhead time of its day. This is like American Idol. I mean, Jesus was a celebrity drawing crowds never before seen. And yet, he then will go up to a mountain to pray and send his disciples across the sea right into an incredibly difficult storm. Now, the next part of the passage says that when he saw them walking on the sea, they supposed he was a ghost. And they cried out, for they, had, they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be a good cheer. Don't be afraid. Then he went up into the boat with them. The wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed beyond measure and marveled. And here's the key I want you to see. For they had not understood about the loaves. 
because their hearts had been hardened. And when they had crossed over, they landed at Gerenaset, right here, and anchored there. He's saying you cannot understand this passage unless you understand the previous passage we talked about last week. There was a lesson about the loaves they were supposed to apply once they got on the lake. And once they got on the lake, whatever God had them or wanted for them to apply, they had forgotten. So we're going to move backwards into last week's passage to find out what was that lesson of the loaves they should have learned, and then how do you apply that into the circumstances of the storms of the lake. Because what's going to happen is they're going to have an incredible short-term memory. They're going to forget that God provides. They're going to forget that Jesus is powerful. They're going to forget His wisdom. They're going to forget His care. And they're going to forget to depend on Him when they most need it. They have what we all have. An incredible short-term memory. We forget about God. We forget about His faithfulness. We forget about depending on Him. So how do you overcome your short-term memory problem? That's what disciples need to work on. They need to put the loaf in the lake. How do you put the loaf in the lake? The things you learn during the times when you're so close with God, how do you put them into your lake moments to overcome your short-term memory? We're going to at the lesson of the lake and the lesson of the loaves, but in reverse order. And here's the benefit of that. Because you begin to tell yourself when you're in these lake moments, when the storms begin to rage, when the seas are going back and forth, you begin to tell yourself what he did last time is what he'll do this time. Who he was last time when I was in a storm is who he'll be this time. And that begins to build confidence and faith in these circumstances. Let's jump into the lesson of the loaves by moving backwards a bit. Here's what I think Jesus is saying they should have learned for the lake. Jesus is the source of salvation. Jesus comes to the 5,000 and he says they seem like sheep not having a shepherd. He is the shepherd. There's something really key going on here that references back to the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, that phrase is also used when Moses is saying, who's going to lead after this? I look at all the people you've entrusted to me, and in Numbers chapter 27, the Lord may not, I don't want them to be like sheep who have no shepherd. So Jesus feels compassion to his people. Well, in this passage in Numbers, God turns to Moses and says, Moses, don't worry, I'm going to send someone to lead them. His name will be Yeshua, Joshua. And Joshua's name means, the Lord is my salvation. So the one that follows Moses, the one who is the source of salvation, was Yeshua. The angel shows up with Mary and says, Mary, I want you to name your son Yeshua, which is we translate Jesus, for his name means salvation. That he is your salvation. He is the one you call out to. He is the ultimate Moses. He is the ultimate successor of Moses. He is God in the flesh. He is the source of salvation. I think is one of the lessons they were supposed to have learned. The next lesson we see in the next part. He answered and said to them, You shall give you, the disciples, give them the 5,000 something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? He said, well, how many loaves do you have right here? Go and see. And they found out they had five and two fish. I think there's two insights here. One is that when we use our resources, they deplete. Right? The more you use your resources, they go down. That's true of almost every area. Financially, certainly it's true. But it's true emotionally and spiritually as well. My patience runs out on people. Maybe yours doesn't. But mine does. My love runs out as I use it. My ability to love the unlovable runs out. 
My self-control runs out. The more I use my resources, the more they drain. It's the opposite with Jesus. The more you tap into his resources, they increase with use. And our instinct is to drain ourselves rather than tapping into him and seeing his Holy Spirit, his joy, his peace, his gentleness begin to flow within us. So what happens is they say, we've got a huge need and we don't have enough resources. Now, there's two views on this passage, and I take one that no one else takes, which is always scary. So keep in mind, I might be wrong. The principle will be the same. Many commentators think this is theoretical. Hey, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread? As if, you know, no one has that kind of money. There's no way we could have the resources to do that. That's what most commentators believe. I actually think the disciples did have enough money to buy for 5,000 people. I'll give you a few reasons why, since nobody takes this position. Number one, we've learned already in the passage that Jesus called business people who owned boats and had hired hands. I think they brought their resources to bear in Jesus' ministry. Two, Jesus had several very wealthy people that support his ministry. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. Jesus actually gets Herod's CEO, all of his money, multi-billionaire's wife, to be one of his converts. He's also hanging out with 5,000 people, even if they gave the smallest of tithes. Also, if you have a business, you don't hire a treasurer unless you have enough money that needs managed. And Jesus has a treasurer. So I think they do have the resources, but they're saying, is this the best use of resources to pay for our resources to feed 5,000 people? Besides, we've got to go find the food and bring it back here. And Jesus says, hey, instead of using all your resources up, how about instead we just look at what we have here and you depend on my resources? Again, I might be wrong, but the principle is still the same. Whether they drained the resources they would have had or whether or not they didn't have any resources to begin with, the principle is still trust Christ's resources. It goes above and beyond what you can imagine. So they do find what they do have nearby, food-wise, and they have five loaves and two fish. And they hand it to Jesus and something amazing happens. He grabs it. He commands them to... Again, notice he commands them, the disciples, to do the work to make them, the crowd, all sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in ranks in hundreds and fifties. Now again, the audience is going, oh, we're talking about Moses again. Because in Exodus, Moses was exhausted doing it all himself, draining his resources. Jethro, his father-in-law, shows up and says, you've got to do something differently. You've got to start delegating, my buddy. You've got to start dividing up new judges and new help and divide them in groups of hundreds and fifties. I think Jesus is just giving these hints of I am the ultimate fulfillment of Moses. We're going to divide people up like Moses did. 100 here, 50 here. He goes on. He took the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up into heaven. He blessed and broke the loaves. And he gave them to the disciples to do the work, to set before them. And the two fish he divided among all. And they ate and were fulfilled. I love that phrase. They, the huge need they had before that their resources couldn't meet, All eight, every single one of them, and they were filled. You see, when I respond to what he's done, when I begin to respond to his resources, when I begin to tap into God's source of salvation and joy and peace, satisfaction comes around me. When I tap into my resources, the more I spend, the more crabby I get. Not only are they satisfied, the passage goes on to say they're more than satisfied. Look what it says. They took up 12 baskets. Everybody eats, and then there's still 12 baskets left over. Fragments of the fish. And those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men, which means there's more. There's there's women, there's children. So 10,000 people are gathered here. Easily. 
and there's still 12 baskets left over. And we learned over the last couple of weeks that this area Jesus is ministering to is called the area of the 12, where the Jewish people, the followers of, of the law were. And so in the area of the 12, there's 12 baskets left over. Then he'll move over to the area of the 7, where the unconvinced live, and there'll be 7 baskets left over, showing that he's the bread of life to the convinced and the unconvinced. Now, this mosaic is actually in the other location where they think the 5,000 are being fed, the one I mentioned earlier. It was uh, set during the Byzantine era, in fact, era, and so they put together this mosaic, and it's funny because it's so many years after the fact that the fish in the mosaic are fish that are not even um, in the Sea of Galilee. Just years later, they say, oh, just where Jesus did it, but actually that mosaic is a kind of fish that doesn't exist in the Sea of Galilee. But that is the traditional, or at least the current thinking on um, why it would be on the west side and not the east side. So here's what they should have learned. One, Jesus is the source of salvation. Two, his resources increase with use. They don't decrease. And three, when you trust in him, all are satisfied and then some. And right after the lesson of the loaves, wow, we got it. Wow, we're serving God. Look what he can do. He immediately sends them into the lake to learn the lesson of the lake. So here's the question. What good is believing that Jesus can feed 5,000? What good is believing that he is faithful and responsible and loving and caring? What good is that if you can't apply it six hours later? I go, well, that's my problem, isn't it? Maybe it's your problem. I can have a moment in the Bible where I'm really, oh, I really get it, I really get it, and I step into work, I step into a relationship problem, I step into a challenge, and it all goes out the window because of my short-term memory. How do you put the loaf in the lake? But Jesus sends him in the lake, and here's what happens. Immediately, he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat. He made it. He sends them into the lake to apply the loaf lesson. To go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. He wants to see if they can apply these lessons in the lake. I've gotten two uh, emails recently. One's a Facebook post, one's an email of folks who have been coming to our church for the last uh, six weeks, four and six weeks, who are finding ways to apply God in their life in new and fresh ways. One couple shared with us that during the uh, series we did on Joseph last fall, that all those lessons about how God worked in Joseph's high points and low points, high points and low points, helped them look back in the previous years of their life and see how God used the a job search, a move they didn't necessarily want, how God used a challenge of their kids moving and some of the difficulties of that to grow them and to develop their faith. And I said, that series and what Horizon's doing, what God's doing in my life is teaching me how to apply faith in the difficulties of life. I had an even cooler one this week. A woman emailed me and said, you might want to check out my daughter's blog. She's 21. She has cancer. She's angry at God for all those reasons. If you don't mind a few four-letter words, check out her blog. Her blog was how she attended our church four weeks ago at our uh, wow moments beginning. And how at the end of that she realized that maybe God did want to connect with her. God maybe did want to turn her owl moments into wow moments. And through a whole bunch of very honest, raw, colorful language, she was beginning to say, I'm trying to figure out how to have faith in the midst of cancer. That's where it gets very real. When you're out on the lake. When the waves are crashing... It's even worse in this passage because it says Jesus sent them out there. Jesus sent them into this circumstance where the waves would be crashing and they'd be tossed to and from. 
But he sends us into the lake to apply the lesson of the loaves. He goes on, he says this. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea. And he, Jesus, was alone on the land. And he saw them. He's watching them. They're not out of his gaze. He saw them straining at rowing. For the wind was against them the whole time. And it was the fourth watch of night by now when he comes to them. Which means he's watched them strain for six hours. Imagine this. Jesus is sitting up in a mountain. He's praying. What is he praying for? I imagine he's praying they will apply the lesson of the loaves. You might think that Jesus isn't watching you, that God has forgotten about you in the midst of your lake moments. And I want you to know that Jesus has his eye on you. He's praying for you. He said, why didn't you rescue me? He's praying that you will apply faith in your lake moment. He's watching you strain as you use all your resources up. (gasps) You're relying on your strength. These were commercial fishermen. This was their strength. And they're draining their resources, straining and pulling out every trick they've had in fishing their whole life. And they're not succeeding for six hours. Which I think goes back to the lesson of the loaves. Jesus lets us spend our resources or depend on his resources. You can depend on your resources and they will decrease with use. Or you can depend on his resources that increase with use. But he will step back and wait. Come on, guys. Remember the loaves? You didn't have enough resources and I showed up? Why don't you call out to me? You don't have enough resources here. Why are you continuing to try to do it that way? Why is that? You know, I uh, play volleyball on Mondays. I just turned 42 a few months ago. And I sort of prided myself that in my adult life, I still don't ever stretch before I work out. And uh, I'm getting to the point that my resources are depleting. Because I still jump and dive and somersault while I'm playing sand volleyball. And on Monday nights, I find myself sore. And I have no idea why. Man, my back hurts. What is going on here? And I realize that I need access to new skills, new resources. I need to actually stretch and work out. And my body doesn't work the way it used to anymore. In fact, my son, uh, Javen, he's going to be 16. He wants to uh, work out a little bit this summer together. And I hate running for running's sake, if it's not a sport, and I certainly hate any kind of workout exercise. So he said, why don't we do the Insanity workout together? And if you've never done this Insanity workout, this is this guy who is so excited. Oh my goodness, put your knees up! All right, only ten more minutes! Isn't this great? Are you loving it? No, I am not loving it. I don't like you. I don't like the exercise. I don't like any of it! But what I realize is, in order to have the resources I need, I need to tap into new sources. And the new sources are development of muscles, faith muscles, physical muscles I don't have before. And that's why he sends us in the lake for six hours until we spend what we have. But notice how even then he lets things get worse before they get better. He sees them. He says, okay, it's now time to go out. Six hours they've been straining. And you can just almost see a twinkle in his eye as he gets up to the edge of the water and goes, Here we go. He starts walking across the sea. As he's walking, he's coming up to the boat. Still about, I mean, 100 yards in front of him. He's getting a little closer. Maybe he's even jogging a little bit. And pretty soon he sees the boat. And now he's coming up to the boat. And you'd think he'd run straight toward him. Guys, I'm here. No, no, no. He's running toward the boat. Imagine the boat's my my lector in there. He comes up. 
He's walking on by. He's walking on by. He doesn't go toward him. He goes past him. In fact, he may have made it to the other side, except as they yell, that's a ghost, which grabs his attention. Look what happens in the text. Walking on the sea, he would have passed them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. Their fear went up. Their trouble went up. Their anxiety went up. In the midst of the anxiety, now keep in mind, the storm's still going. Oh my goodness, grab that rope. Grab that oar. Come on, oh my goodness. Oh, it's a ghost too. Oh my goodness. John, watch out for that. Look what's going on here. And Jesus walking up by like, comes over the boat. Hey, what's going on here? Oh, the ghost is talking to us. And Jesus says, hey, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. If you actually trace every time God encounters somebody in anxiety, he doesn't promise he'll stop the waves. He doesn't promise he'll make things better. He always gives the same promise. I'm here. He comes to Moses. Oh, I'm not the one to go to Pharaoh. Oh, my goodness, that's a bad place. Ah, I, I stutter real bad. Ah, I don't talk real good. You, you, you need to get somebody else. Moses, I am with you. Joshua, you're going into a new land. You're facing new frontiers, new unknown area. Even though there's no pillar of fire or pillar of cloud anymore, I am with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. He comes to Gideon. Gideon's like, oh my goodness, so the Amalekites and the Philistines, you want me to go against them? You've got a wrong guy. I mean, I am threshing my wheat in an in, in a enclosed area. <coughs> I am the scaredest, scaredy cat you've ever met. Do not pick me. I am with you. That's how you put the loaf in the lake. You say, how would I act if I knew for sure that God was with me? And the storm's still going on. So it's, be a good chair and decide, do not give up, do not be afraid. And he went up into the boat with them, and as he steps in, whoosh, the wind stops. The streaming stops. Now his literal presence is literally in the boat with them. And everything changes. And look at their reaction. For they were greatly amazed. Literally means out of their minds. In themselves. Beyond measure. And they marveled. It's like a triple doll. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Like, well, of course. Of course. Six hours earlier, he fed fed 10,000 people with a fish and some loaves. That was a doll moment. But six hours later, they forgot about it. Because they had not learned to take what they learned on the shore and put it into the lake with them. And that's why he says here, they had not understood who he is, what he does. That what he did last time is what he'll do this time. He'll show up. What he did last time is what he'll do this time. He'll offer his resources. What he did last time is what he'll do this time. He's aware. He's available of the loaf. And why is it? Because they had hardened their hearts. Their hearts were hardened. Now, you don't see them sinning. You don't see like, oh my goodness, they headed out to some orgy or something. They're just straining. But in their straining in their own resources, the Bible equates that to hardening your heart. Now, to me, this is a very sobering warning to us. 
to followers of Christ, to Christians. These are the disciples who six hours, having been with Jesus, weren't able to apply it. How much more for you and I? What would it look like right now to apply what God's doing in your life to your grief? To your new chapter? To your rejection? To your high highs? To your low lows? What if God was as faithful now in your low point as you felt He was in your high point? How would you react if you could put the loaf into the lake? And it's really weird that Christ will increase their fear in order to increase their faith. He creates circumstances that allow their fear level to go up. They think He's a ghost to increase their faith. It reminds me a bit when we first moved to Cincinnati 13 years ago. Uh, we had all the allergies related to Cincinnati and the 2,000 molds that exist here. And so we went to the doctor, and the doctor said, I know what you need to take care of your allergy problem. Great. Is there a pill? Is there a nose plug? What do you got? Well, well here, we found out you're allergic to mold and dust mites and cats, and, and they put them all together. These are all the things you're allergic to. Great. Should I stay away from them? Well, sort of. We're going to inject them into your body. What? Yeah, we got a little dust mite here. We're going to stick it in the solution. We're going to shoot it into your arm. That doesn't sound good. Oh, we got a little cat hair here, and we're going to shoot that into your bloodstream. What? That sounds horrible. Oh, and see all these molds you're allergic to? We're going to stick it under your skin. Ugh. Why would you do that? This isn't a doctor. This is some kind of quack. I've gone to the wrong person at the wrong time. This is nonsense. You don't deal with a, a problem by getting more of the problem. Well, that's exactly what you do. Because when you put that under your skin, your body can start developing immunity. And if you struggle with fear, God will probably put more fearful circumstances in your life. It's a quack God. We're serving the quack God. He wants to put more fear into your life so you can build an inoculation from fear because you finally begin to realize He is with you and your worst case scenario is not the end of the world because He is with you. Even when there's storms, even when it's difficult, He is with you. Put your loaf in the lake. And here's what's amazing. Remember, there's all these allusions to Him being Moses. He divides people from the 50 into the 100. He's the Yeshua who was the leader to lead the shepherdless people. But another really interesting thing that's in the text that several commentators mention is that the Egyptians, of course, wrote in hieroglyphics. And they had a particular hieroglyphic that was really interesting. This particular one, if you asked an Egyptian how to write out impossible, here's how they would write it out for hundreds, even centuries. They would draw a picture of the sea and they would put a foot on top of it. That is what the symbol was for impossible. And it was impossible they would ever get out of bondage. It was impossible they'd ever be out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. It was impossible that they could cross the Red Sea. It was impossible that hundreds of thousands, even millions of people could be fed daily. It was impossible that they could get water. It was impossible that they could start a community. It was impossible that they could, they could actually change the world. But God delivered them, forgave them, taught them, gave them a law, delivered them. He did the impossible. And Jesus shows up and goes, I'll show you impossible. You know the hieroglyphic about the impossible? God is here. And with God, nothing is impossible. Again, just demonstrating He is the God who does all things at all times. 
If he can provide in their lake, he can provide in ours. So what does it look like for you and I to do that? Well, often we take our faith, our promises of God, and we peel it back. And we dig in to God's promises. We dig into His Word. We dig into the truths. And then we hide ourselves in Him. We put ourselves in His promises. We remember during difficult times that He is with us. What He promised to us. Who He is. What His presence means. And when we hide ourselves in His promises, we begin to actually put the loaf in the lake. And as those storms come back and forth, we remind ourselves, He is with me. As I toss back and forth, as I wonder what's going on, I hide myself in His promises and say, God, You are the God who provides. You are the Yahweh. All heaven is breaking loose because You are here even in the midst of the storms. That's how you put the loaf in the lake. God will do the impossible here. Not always in the same way, rarely in the same way, but His presence will always be the same. Put the loaf of His promises in the lake of your circumstances. How do you do that? Three ways. One, many of us are currently resenting the lake we have. We resent it. We're ticked off at God. We resent that He'd put us here. We resent that He'd allowed this to happen. We are just mad at God. We resent Him for it. And I want to challenge you that you need to move from resentment to embracement. Embracing your lake and saying, God, You've sent me here for whatever reason You've allowed this to happen. I'm going to embrace this lake moment and ask you to teach me what you want to teach me. I know you're praying for me. I know you're watching me. That I would call out to you in the midst of this. Second thing, I need to start swapping my resources from his resources. Maybe you're drained and exhausted. He says, great, that's exactly where I want you. It's now time to reach out. What would it look like for you to pour into his resources and not yours? And third... When your fear level goes up, swap fear for faith that He is with you and He's working in the midst to remind yourself that who He was last time is who He is this time. And what He did last time is what He'll do this time. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for being such a great God. Thank You for being so faithful. Thank You for being so wise. Thank You for Your prayers. Thank You for Your love. And God, I ask for each of us as we step into our lake moments as we go out the door, that we would bring your promises with us and bring your presence with us and bring a sense of awe that you are who you said you were. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on the way out. If you're new to Horizon, I'd love to say hi to you. Or uh, there's also some folks, third door on your left in the hearth room, would love to put a name with a face. Thanks for being here today. We'll see you next week as we continue the study. Thank you.